Anyone here know about the, the Jeffersonian Bible? Thomas Jefferson was a, um, an avid Bible reader. And in fact, he read his Bible not with a highlighter and a pen, but with a scissor. And he would take out the parts of the Bible he didn't like. Anything supernatural was, was gone. And really, the, the title of the Jeffersonian Bible, I apologize, I didn't write it down, was something along the lines of the life and morals of Jesus Christ. It was relegating scripture to a, a book of high morality and good examples, but taking away the parts he didn't like. Would we ever do that? Anyone here have a scissor-cut Bible? Anyone here, though, ever avoid parts of the Bible that don't suit your fancy? Anyone been having a marvelous time in Nahum or uh, the second half of Numbers? Uh, you ever run into the problem where you come to a text that doesn't quite sound right, and so you try to explain it away? You see, there's a little bit of Jefferson in all of us in that we, we tend to come to certain passages of Scripture that, that cause us angst and, and either avoid them or distort them, and when we do, we miss the beauty of the gospel. We're going to come to a text today that may very well fall into those lines. It's in Luke 19, and it is a marvelous, encouraging, important text, as long as we can see it the right way. Luke 19, starting in verse 11, and, and I was determined, Dylan did a marvelous job last week preaching, amen? amen? But I also envy, Dylan stood behind this pulpit the entire time. And I'm like, I'm, I'm itching to move. So hopefully Dylan will, will give me some lessons on, on staying in place. But you're going to have to forgive me because I already feel the pull coming on. Luke 19, it's as soon as I get to reading it, I step out here and we're gone. Luke, Luke 19, verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded, Jesus proceeded to tell the parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minutes. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your minute has made ten minutes more. And he said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant, because you've been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. To the second came, saying, Lord, your minute has made five minutes. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, here is your minute, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked, I'm sorry, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I didn't sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the minute from him and give it to the one who has 10 minutes. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minutes. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. 
A parable is a story with a point. And every time Jesus told a parable, hey, Chigboom, you might want to, well, you want to try to fix the tilt or let it go? Let it go. Every time Jesus tells a parable, he takes what's common, what people can understand, brings them there, and then pulls them through what they can understand to something they don't yet understand. So I'm sure all of you are very familiar with the concept of a nobleman going away to receive a kingdom to come back and to call an account, right? That's how we have politicians come to power? No? We, we vote, we decide, we, well, let me, let me put this in context. Back around this time, roughly 20, 25 years before, there was a man named Archelaus. Archelaus was one of the kids of Herod the Great. Well, Herod the Great dropped dead in AD 4. And when he died, he left his, his kingdom, his rule and reign, to, to some of his boys. And Archelaus had the area that included Jericho and Jerusalem. Well, Archelaus was a bad man. In fact, one Passover, he just killed 3,000 Jews to let them know that he was in charge. You know, bad, bad Leroy Brown? It's actually bad, bad Archelaus. Well, the problem was in the Roman Empire, Herod was a king, but not really a king like you think of a king. He was a king under the authority of Rome, under the authority of Caesar. Caesar had to affirm his kingship. Well, so when Archelaus came to power, he had to go to Rome to receive his kingdom. He was a nobleman who had to go receive his kingdom from Rome. Well, when he went, the Jews sent a delegation to try to stop Rome from giving him the, the, the kingdom, if you will, that encompassed Jerusalem and Jericho because they hated him. Well, they failed. He came back and he ruled and reigned. In fact, he had a, a castle right in Jericho where this is taking place. So when Jesus tells this story, this is like real-life politics. These folks know what he's talking about. Jesus isn't equating himself morally to Archelaus, but he's saying, y'all know how this works. You know how kings receive their kingdom, right? And so notice at the beginning, they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Jesus says, let me tell you a story. People aren't getting this kingdom coming thing. Realize Jesus has told the disciples, the kingdom has come to others, the kingdom of God is in your midst, and they're all wrestling because they expect the Messiah to establish his rule and reign. They, they don't understand the, the two coming dynamics like we are able to understand them right now. Well, so Jesus is driving home the point. He tells a story. There's a nobleman who went into a far country to receive a kingdom and then return. But before he went, he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minutes and said to them, Engage in business until I get back. Archelaus would have done this. He would have said, uh, Javier, Franklin, Moishi, Joey, you're in charge of this, you're in charge of this, you're in charge of this, you're in charge of this. I'll be back. I expect a good report and I expect some interest on my uh, materials. Take care. Right? So he goes away. And it says, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him. Notice the difference between servants and citizens. They sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. A little problem with that, isn't there? If you go and you say, we don't want this king over us, and then the king gets his kingdom and comes home, you got a little problem on your hands, right? It's like when you, when you rat on somebody, when, 
in school, and, and well, we'll get back to that maybe. Well, he went, and then verse 15, something happened. What happened in verse 15? He came back. Hmm. What did he do when he came back? I'm home, right? He calls the servants. First servant comes in. He says, how'd you do? He says right here, Lord, your minna has made 10 minutes more. Notice the wording there. He doesn't say, Lord, I've advised with my investments. I bought futures in the cattle industries. I invested in shofar production. And the shofar business is booming. Mazel tov. Here's, here's your minna's return. Is that what he said? I think it says, your minna has made 10 minas more. Ain't that crazy, the minna making minas? So then the next guy comes in. He says, how'd you do? Well, first he says, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. Well, the second guy comes in. Lord, your minna has made five minas more. What does he say to him? You blind fool, you should have invested in shofars. Look how high I'm did. Is that what he said? No. He said to him, and you're to be over five cities. Notice again, the minas made minas. And then another one came in. Lord, here's your minna. It was wrapped in a handkerchief. Now, maybe you wrap something in a handkerchief. You think, I don't know, keeps the dust off it. That was sheer stupidity. If you wanted to hide something and keep it safe, and this time in particular, you buried it. He didn't wrap it in a handkerchief, but he wraps it in a handkerchief. Why did he wrap it in a handkerchief? He tells us, I was afraid of you. You're a severe man. You take what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. Nobleman who's a king says, all right, I'll condemn you with your own words. And what does he call him? What kind of servant? Now, can we hang on there a minute? It's not like... He came home and found one servant decapitating dogs, burning cats, and knocking over old ladies. He came home and found one guy just wrapped up the minute. It wasn't about the business he was supposed to be about, and he called him what? Foolish? No. Ignorant? No. What did he call him? Wicked. Whoo, wicked. He said, I'll condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You know I was a severe man, taking what I didn't deposit, reaping what I didn't sow. I need to do something. You know, I'm a hard guy, and it was going to come down like this. You could have at least put it in the bank and taken interest. He says, why then? Did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, and from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. And then the enemies, the citizens who didn't want me to reign over them, bring them here and we'll, 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 we'll find unity and we'll find common ground, it says. Amen? What does it say? It's going to happen to the, the people who were his enemies. Can't, come on, we can't have Jesus slaughtering people. That doesn't work, does it? Hold on a minute. It's got to be something unique in the Greek language that's going to tell us that it just says he's going to slaughter them. Well, obviously, this text is so clear, I don't even need to unpack it for you, right? 
I mean, it's just, it's straightforward. Don't get yourself slaughtered by Jesus. Work really hard, because if you don't, when he comes back, he's going to kill you. Go in peace, serve the Lord, but serve him really, really good so you don't die. Is that not the point of the text? We've spent a lot of time looking at, in Luke, how someone is saved. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Remember that two weeks ago? Blind Bartimaeus, tree climbing Zacchaeus. We, we've seen all sorts of ways in which Jesus demonstrated his identity. We know how one is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not by works. But now Jesus talks about how those who are saved are to live. Not to be saved, but because they are saved. And he talks about a delay, an expectation of engaging in business of the master to turn a profit, and a return. And every one of us is in this parable. Other than the nobleman, there are three people in this parable. True servant, false servant, enemy. Faithful, faithless, vindictive. How do you know which one you are? Well, I choose to self-identify as a faithful servant. Jesus said, I have to respect your, your identity preferences so you may enter the kingdom of God. Is that how this works? Well, let's do it this way, make it really awkward. Do we have any uh, false, faithless Christians in here? Don't, please don't put up your hand. It's an awkward pastoral movement. But how many of us would assume we're faithless, fake Christians? Well, how do we know we're not? And how would we know if we saw someone who wasn't encouraging with the gospel? You see, this is a marvelous text, but you want to be real careful here, because now I feel like I'm making people nervous. Like, where is he going with this? I'm just sitting in the text. Watch this right here. How do you identify a faithful servant? What does a faithful servant do? Invest what God gives him. And, and what is it specifically this pointing to? I mean, it's really, it's, it's, it's marvelous. Don't be afraid of this text. You've been entrusted with the gospel. You've been entrusted with a new identity in Christ. You've been, oh, let's just go there early. Remember Ephesians? This text is Ephesians. Go through Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians 2. By grace you have been saved through faith. Amen. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. American church, close your Bible, we're done there. Well, hold on, open it up, we'll be a biblical church. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works which, who prepared beforehand that we should walk in them? Here's what Jesus is talking about. You've been saved by grace through faith, not by works, so no one can boast. You're citizens of a kingdom, and I'm your king. Be about my business. It's what I've saved you to. Be a good and faithful servant. See, well, yeah, we'll go there in a minute. Watch this. Anyone know who J.C. Ryle is? Ryle is? You could Google him. You should read some of his books. He says, old, old dead guy, our title to heaven is all of grace. Our degree of glory in heaven will be proportioned to our works. 
Anybody uncomfortable now? We're going to talk about rewards and distinctions in heaven. I find most people get uncomfortable when we talk about the concept of rewards, especially rewards from God. I just have two things to say to that. Number one is, the problem is with us, not with God. God clearly, in Scripture, says he will reward the faithfulness of his servants. We're like, but that's not fair. We can't do anything good unless he causes us to. It makes no sense. I, I, I'm careful with, it, with this back and forth we're having with God. God chooses to reward those of his servants who are faithful. Okay? Second thing is, understand your rewards aren't to gratify the flesh. You won't see faithful Pastor John in the new heaven and new earth walking in a long mink coat with a fancy hat. I was faithful. Jerry was faithless and she has bad clothes. Is that, you know? I'm going to be driving that, that biblical Bentley with, with the bass. Boom, boom. Here comes that snobby, elitist, faithful guy. He was all, he did that, oh, one good thing for Jesus and got the biblical Bentley. And then you got Karan is riding some scooter in heaven. <laughs> right? And, and Jesus said, like, you kept making fun of his hair. Well, now enjoy your scooter with a rusty wheel. No, the, the rewards are always increased opportunities to glorify God, to serve God and serve and love others. So the rewards are just bigger things that we get to do. A little thing is just a little thing, but faithfulness is a, in a little thing is a huge thing. Hudson Taylor said that. So God rewards. We got the one servant. Here's a minute. He got 10 minutes out of it. Well done, good servant. You now rule over 10 cities. He got a minute. Here's five minutes. Good job. Five cities for you. All we're doing is stewarding what we're entrusted with being about the Lord's business for the Lord's glory. What's that look like? Well, a couple ways we could do it. You can do it your way or his way. Here's what you're called to. Grow in godliness. Flee sin. It's called investing a minute. Trust Christ to meet your needs and guide your decisions. Love others. Proclaim the gospel. Do what you do for the glory of God. That's how you invest your minute. There are many other things you can read about them, Luke 9, 23 and forward. It's all about minute investment. You don't invest your minute to be saved. You invest your minute because you're saved. You follow me there? You don't invest your minute to be saved. You invest it to not be saved. <laughs> Whatever I said. You invest it because you're saved. Well, the wicked servant. He had a minute. Let me, let me put it in, in contemporary context. The wicked servant looks like some guy who goes to church all the time. He talks a good talk. He's got a testimony to share. Can I, can I give you a little side note, just a free takeaway? Somebody say, no, I'm going to do it anyway. So, Can anyone, everyone here identify the, the day, date, and time that they were saved? I think that's what people call their testimony. Careful with that. Because if you can identify your day, date, and time you were saved, well, that sure creeps into your saved by a work of your praying a prayer to accept Jesus. Your testimony does not have to. In fact, usually doesn't have a day, a date, and a time. Your testimony has the fact that I know I am a great, savior, a great sinner in need of a great Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. Right? We all have the same biblical testimony here. 
Well, what we do is we run into a person who, who will give you a verbal testimony, who shows up at church, who, who's involved in churchy stuff, who, who may be leading like a, a Bible study over here and, and, and mailing Bibles all over the world and, and doing Christianese stuff and, and knowing the lingos. You know, you stub your toe and go, praise Jesus, right? But they're, they're not investing the minute as the master calls them to. They're using the minna as they want to use for their own glory, their own reputation in their own way. Said another way, they're worshiping God not according to spirit and truth, but they're worshiping God according to personal preference. Sound like this a little bit. Well, I'm going to worship God at home today. Because, you know, where, where two or more are gathered, he's there with us. And, and I don't feel like going in, but it's okay because church isn't a building. I'll put it in the Old Testament times. We're going to go worship God in the high places. Or I'm going to give this to God as my, my offering of praise and thanksgiving. And I don't know exactly what he says, but, but, but I'm going to do what, what I feel is right. I'll put it in Old Testament terms. Honey, bring the old dead dog to the temple for a sacrifice. We don't need him anymore and it's free. You ever see a dog offered as a sacrifice at the temple? you got to bring what God says, when he says, how he says, and, and what this guy, this unfaithful servant, he'd be hanging around the church folk, but using the church stuff and the gospel thing for his own glory to manipulate for his own purposes in his own way. It usually looks pretty good. It might look something like a Pharisee. But he's, he fails to be responsible to what Jesus has entrusted to him. Well, is this a saved person? Can you be saved? There's a real question I want you to think about. Can you be saved and be an unfaithful servant? And when you get to heaven, Jesus says, all your work is junk. It all burns up, but you're saved. I don't know. That would be comforting because then we could just be kind of lazy through life, do whatever we want, and we're in. I mean, we'll deal with a rusty scooter and all, but we, we, we're not going to be sinful, so it won't bother us that much, right? Well, careful. Look at this text a little more closely. What does he call the nobleman? Severe? Actually corrupt and wicked? And he says he's afraid of him. If you see Christ as severe, if you're afraid of Christ, if you have no desire to glorify Christ, you're a faithless servant, a.k.a. a nominal Christian. That's what this text is saying. This is not a saved person. This is a person who hangs with the saved, acts like the saved to a degree, but he doesn't have a new heart which allows him to be faithful with the minimum. Let me round this out now, gospelize it more fully, and, and make it hopefully encouraging for all of us. We live in a, in a distracting time where, where life makes demands on us. Business makes demands on us. Family makes demands on us. Neighbors make demands on us. The flesh makes demands on us. The devil tries to tempt us. The world is trying to allure us, right? And we live in a time of competing poles. We, we, we tend to get distracted about what Christ calls us to, what he saved us to, who we are in Christ. And so we kind of just put him off and tend to the more important and immediate stuff today. May we be very careful with that is what this text is reminding us. 
There's a long delay between Jesus' departure and return, but that long delay reveals our true relationship with Jesus. The parable is an encouragement to think about how we are to live during the in-between times of Jesus' two comings. Are we being faithful with what he has entrusted to us, or are we faithless? Now, I'm leaving the third category over here for a minute, the ones who just hate Jesus. How many of you here, just to get this out of the way, just hate Jesus? Now, can I be totally honest? It's rare that you don't have a Sunday when there's not at least one person in, in the gathered assembly who doesn't hate Jesus. Let's just be honest. We're not going to stand up as that person and be like, I hate him. I think he's a make-believe fairy tale that serves no purpose, and y'all a bunch of brainwashed freaks. But somebody's thinking that either in this room, in that Zoom, that rhyme, or who will listen to this at some point. So I want to speak to that for a minute. The nobleman was a king over everyone in the kingdom. People think, you know, I choose not to have a relationship with Jesus. Okay, that's great that you choose that, but it isn't an option. He's the king of all creation. Y'all have a relationship with him. It's a question of, are you saved or are you an enemy? Is it a friendly, familial, or an adversarial relationship? You don't get a choice. He made it all. He owns it all. He rules it all. You can call him a fool, but when you meet him face to face, you're going to regret your words. Well, when Archelaus came back, I can tell you, those who opposed his reign weren't dancing in the streets. It was, oh no, because we're subject to him now, and this is a problem. So, so to those who, who hated Jesus, to the Jews at the time who, who denied him and wanted him dead, to all the people in our times who say, I ain't got time for this nonsense, careful, because notice what he does. He slaughters his enemies. And if you don't believe me, you can read Revelation. It's horrible. He came to seek and save that which was lost, but when he returns, he's not seeking and saving, he's a seek and destroy mission, and that's the most downright frightening thing you can ever comprehend. But bring it in a little tighter now, because even those people can be saved. How can they be saved? By grace through faith. You cry out, God, I lived in insanity. I called you a fool. What sort of sick, wicked person was I? Lord Jesus, help Forgive me, I'm trying to control my whole life for my whole glory, and, and, and I've been sinning nonstop. Help me, forgive me, make me new. He will. But for those who are truly saved, here's what we miss. Loaded question, I suggest you, you, you answer at your own, um, what do you call that? You, you ride at your own risk, your own peril. What's the best part of being saved? Someone's going to go, what did you get to go to heaven? Amen? You sure that's the best part of being saved? Did you get a new body? Your joints don't ache. Your teeth don't fall apart. Amen? You sure that's the best answer? You get to be reunited with, with dead relatives who love Jesus. Pretty good upside, but is that the best part? I remember... Asking my dad as a little kid, what's the best part about having children? You know what his answer was? You can make them do stuff for you. 
and I apologize to my children because I was indoctrinated into that. You know, back when I'm old enough to have four remote controls, so I remember my dad sitting on the couch, turn to channel five, okay, click, turn to 10 now, click, 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 right? I'm thirsty, go get me some water, right? It's like, my dad thought that was the best part of having kids. It's, it's, it's a good upside, but isn't that kind of sick if the best part of having kids is you can make the kids do what you want? What's the best part about being a kid? What would be the best part about being a kid if there was no sin? Let me show you this. Let me round it out. The best part of being saved is you could bring joy to your heavenly Father. You ever think about that? See, we focus it all on us. I get heaven. I get relatives I've lost. I get rewards. I get a new body. I get, I, stop. You, yes. Yes, amen, amen. God is gracious and kind. But the best part, what we're truly made for is I can make my daddy smile. Doesn't every child want their parents' approval? Doesn't, doesn't every little boy just want to hear from their daddy? I'm pleased with you. I'm proud of you. I love you and you make me smile. And then don't we grow into like full-grown men that are still little boys that just never heard that from our earthly daddies, right? Can I tell you what God says to us in Christ? I love you. I am pleased with you. I delight in you. And do you know what he has made you able to do if you're saved? To make your daddy smile. You can do good works which bring joy and delight to him. You can be faithful with your minna, and he will call you faithful and good and reward you. Just chew on this relationship for a minute. Here's what being saved is about. You are able to know God relationally, enjoy God personally, serve God faithfully, bringing him joy. And as you bring him joy, he rewards your faithfulness by entrusting greater things to you, which increase your joy, which in turn increases his joy, and it creates this perpetual eternal cycle of joy begetting joy, very much like the triune God living in relationship with himself before he created anything. So when the Lord Jesus says, Father, I pray that my joy may be in them and their joy may be complete. My friends, the joy isn't in where you go. The joy is in who you are and living that out. So we tend to hear, darn it, I got to do something with this stupid gospel. I just, Jesus, I'm busy with life. I got family matters. I got home matters. I got work matters. I got personal issues. Really, I, I cannot be bothered with the gospel. I'm overwhelmed with life. Missed it. Because what you're assuming is Jesus is a harsh taskmaster. That he, he reaps where he doesn't sow. He takes what's not his. You're afraid of him. How many areas of your life can you think of where you're failing to be faithful with what God has entrusted to you? I mean, when you think about time management, are you like prayerfully, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help me manage my time according to your word for your glory? Or are you managing your time just trying to get through the day? This is, 
we, let's not just have a little theological discussion. When you get up, doesn't life often kick you in the teeth? It's like, oh, Lord Jesus, what should I do today? As you're sitting there and like the dog threw up, a child broke something, you, you hip popped out a socket and the phone's ringing. Right? You're just, you're just trying to, this is how we live. We're just trying to get through our days. We got bills to pay and work to get done and issues to deal with. But what happens is little by little, as we slow down, as we live as the Lord calls us to, we conquer sin. We begin to live for his glory, not ours. And as we do, we find that he knows what he's doing and what he's calling us to. And we start to think as we realize who Jesus is, why would I not want to do exactly what you call me to? I never realized how, how loud the flesh really is. I was talking with my older boys this week and going through a devotional. And one of the questions is, who rules your life? You ever think about that? Who rules your life? Moment by moment, who determines why you do what you do? Is it the Lord Jesus according to his word by the power of his spirit for his glory? Or is it something else, like the flesh? And if you don't realize being saved is a battle between the two, you're losing the battle horribly. Even, dare I say, if you don't realize more often than not, it's probably not Jesus according to his word, by his spirit, for his glory, you're probably not doing so well in the struggle here. Because the struggle is this. To see Jesus for who he is, as he really is. To see yourself for who you really are, as you are and to see what he calls you to as what it really is. Remember the commandment Jesus gave to Zacchaeus? Come down from there, I have to go to your house. Remember the commandment he gave to blind Bartimaeus? Come here. Were those harsh, wicked commandments? To Bartimaeus, come here, I'm going to give you your sight back and you'll be saved. To Zacchaeus, come on down, I'll make you a new man through and through. But what would happen if Bartimaeus said, I can't go, I gotta, I gotta mind my begging pot? Or Zacchaeus said, I can't have you in the house, I got a meeting tonight, a big collection meeting. My friends, we, we are saved to engage in the Lord's business until he returns. And we'll give an account for that. Now, does that cause you joy or fear? Right? So you think, well, what, what about when I'm not faithful? What about the mistakes I make? What about when I don't serve Jesus? Well, can I share something? How do you tend a minnow when you're not tending a minnow? You can. It's called repentance. You see, one of the greatest works that we can do for the glory of God, and don't take my word for it, read scripture, repent. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the, the joy of my salvation. Remember Peter on the beach with Jesus? Pete, how'd you do with that minna? Oh, wait, you denied me three times, just like I said before the rooster crowed? Does Jesus pull the minna and send him to hell? No, he restores him. He does what? He holds him fast. Don't let this text terrify you. Let this text take you to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it's a plug. I'm encouraging you all, keep showing up or start showing up if you haven't. You will see if you stick with it as we work through all of these chapters in the Confession. 31 of them. 
the foundation of our faith is laid so strongly. So think about this. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 16, paragraph 6, we're dealing with good works. Listen to this. It's marvelous. Notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him. Did you hear that? If you're saved, your good works are accepted by Christ. Not as though they are in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight. Meaning, not as though they're perfect through and through. They, they, they got mixed motives in them. But that he, God, looks upon them in his son, Jesus, and is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. You want that in normal language? As one who is saved as one who is being sanctified, your good works, though not perfect through and through, are still acceptable to God because he sees you performing them in your new identity in Christ. This is not a text that says, oh boy, I better do this so I don't go to hell. This is a text that says, oh my, I can do this and bring glory to my God, to be rewarded by my God for, for, for what he has made me able to do, and to cause my daddy to smile, my heavenly father to grin upon me. Why wouldn't I want to be about doing what the Lord has called me to? And here's where the Holy Spirit takes over, and I got nothing left for you. If that doesn't light a fire under you to serve the Lord with faithful stewardship to the minute that he's entrusted to you, the gospel, the abilities, the, the, the on and on, nothing I can do. Because this is where the difference between a, a saved person and a not saved person is demonstrated. If you're able to hear all that and be like, ho-hum, I don't care, I have no interest in serving God any more than I am whatsoever, move on. I would encourage you to rewind and start again in Luke 1. Because with that mindset, you have not truly understood who Jesus is, nor who you were apart from him. But for those of us who are in Christ, I pray that the Holy Spirit works mightily to cause us to be reminded of or to see afresh or anew the fact that we have been entrusted with a minna from the king. And the minna will grow to more minnas as we're faithful with it. And our faithfulness demonstrates the power of God to cause a new creation, us, to joyfully do his will for his glory. And what we do today affects what we will do for all of eternity. Someone once asked me, well, if rewards are real, aren't there going to be jealous people in heaven? I mean, what, what happens if you get to heaven and... and Let's say Dylan's like the, the custodian of a corner store on Kingdom Avenue, right? And let's say that, that Barb comes in and, and Barb's like ruling over 52 cities in the, in the New Jerusalem. Is Dylan going to be like, darn it, I wish I would have just worked harder because this sweeping stuff is just pretty pathetic and I'm stuck with it forever. And then when Karan goes by in a scooter, he'll be like, but, you know, at least I'm not like Karan. But... <laughs> 
but I just, I have a hard time with Barb getting so much better of a deal than I got. Is, is that what it's going to be like? Someone asked me. Different names, but applied it differently. No, you know why? Because the fact that you're even sweeping the corner in the New Jerusalem is going to be more than you can comprehend because you're going to go, I didn't even deserve to be here in the first place. And the fact that I'm here sweeping with Jesus face to face, I'm going to sweep with more delight than I can ever comprehend. But here's the big pivot. Rather than looking at other people and then focusing back on ourselves, we look at other people and praise God. So he'd be praising God for, for the way he caused Barb to be faithful to now rule and reign over 52 cities. He'd even be praising God for the fact Karan could ride that scooter with a smile on his face. And he'd get back to sweeping for Jesus. And the whole time he's sweeping, and whenever he'd look up into his heavenly father's face, do you know what he would see? A smile. Because his heavenly father delights in him. This text is a reminder and an invitation not of how to be saved. We got that down. We'll never really get it down, but you understand what I mean. It's not the focus of the text. It's how those who are saved shall live because God will cause them to live this way. Let me read it to you one more time and we'll pray. So as they heard these things, what things are we talking about? Everything Jesus has been sharing before. Zacchaeus, Bartimaeus, the son of man, came to seek and save the lost. They're hearing these things. He proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. It's about a six-hour walk from here. He's going to Jerusalem to die and then rise again. And he says, there's a nobleman who went to a far country to receive a kingdom and then return. And, and I imagine as he's in Jericho, as he's saying this, someone's eye looks up and they see the, the castle of Archelaus. They're like, oh, I know this story, Jesus called ten of his servants, and he gave them ten minutes and said to them, engage in business until I come. And I wonder if maybe one of the people here in this parable was someone who tended a minna of Archelaus when he went to Rome to receive his kingdom. Well, the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And I wonder if maybe there's a little boy or a girl in the crowd whose daddy went with that delegation to Rome to try to stop Archelaus, and they lost their daddy when he returned. Well, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. And I imagine the people thinking, we know this story, Jesus. We know what happens. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your minute has made ten minutes more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. And maybe off in the corner is someone who worked in the palace because of his faithfulness to Archelaus. And the people glance over and go, idiot. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your minute has made five minutes. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. And maybe there's a little, little town clerk that runs over a couple little hamlets who was faithful to Archelaus. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you didn't deposit and you reap where you did not sow, what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I didn't sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, and this is where it gets crazy, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas, I tell you. 
that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Well, when Jesus finished telling this parable, I guarantee you that the people didn't all go, aha, we understand. Planted a seed. Some of the soil didn't take the seed. Some, it started to grow. They thought they got it. What did it look like? We'll watch next week. It looked like them standing by the side of the road, waving palm palm branches, yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he. This is the son of David, Hosanna. Then they yell, crucify him. But some of that seed of that parable fell into the fertile soil of the disciples' hearts, and it grew over time. As you continue to read through Scripture and you read the book of Acts, you see it start to germinate through the faithful stewardship. You look at a life of Paul, you, you look at a life of, of any of the saints, because every saint, my friends, will steward the minna with a degree of faith, and the minna always begets more minna. Why? Well, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the word of God that sanctifies us through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the word of God that saves. How will they believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless someone preaches? No one will be saved unless they hear the very word of God, unless the minute is thrown. And over time, little by little, they came to understand what we on this side of the cross are far more able to understand. That he will hold us fast that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus, that he will cause us to endure to the very end. It's it's the very ending of Jude. Do you know how the book of Jude ends? You're going to find out in a second if I can get there. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forevermore. Here's what it's saying to us as saints. You are saved. Now live like saved people. You can do it because he will cause you to, but you need to be active and diligent in the work of stewarding what's entrusted to you for the glory of God according to the very word of God. What motivates you? Not fear, my friends. What motivates you is that you can make your daddy smile. And if that is not the greatest delight you have, it is simply because you are not yet fully sanctified. One day, when we are fully sanctified in the presence of God himself, we will gaze upon the new heavens and the new earth. We will sit with those we've lost and we've been reunited with. We will enjoy perfect bodies. We will do the things that we never imagined we can do, and they will all be magnificent and perfect and spectacular. But the best part of all is knowing that we are able to bring joy to our Heavenly Father because our Heavenly Father delights in us. Be faithful with the minute because we serve a faithful God. He will cause us to, we must fight diligently to, but the motivation to is not to be saved. The motivation to is because we are saved and we are made to bring joy to our Father who delights in us. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I feel like I had a lot of words today. 
And I pray that those from me would be quickly forgotten, but whatever was intended from you would be planted deeply in our hearts. Lord Jesus, help us. There are way too many times that we are not faithful with what you've entrusted to us. Forgive us. Restore us. Help us to, as Renee reminds us week by week, to focus upon the reality of who you are and who we are in you. But Lord, if there are times, in which for those of us who are saved, there are, where we steward your minute even for a moment well, may we rejoice in that, for apart from being born anew, we wouldn't be able to do that at all. For it is not the size of our faith that saves us. It is the object of our faith. For even a, a tiny mustard seed of faith is sufficient. For that comes from you as a gift. So Lord, help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Help us to be reminded of who we were, how much like Zacchaeus we really were, but who we have become. Help us to remember, Lord Jesus, that not only are you real, not only have you come, but that you will return. And help us to be about your business until that day, for whatever is not done as your business will not last. But what is done for your glory has eternal benefit and value. Lord Jesus, help us. Help us this week. Help us this day to marvel and rest and rejoice in our identity in you and to walk in that identity as you have saved us to by your power and for your glory. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your gospel. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for yourself. Thank you that you came to seek and save that which was lost, to make it new, to make it yours, to make enemies into friends, to make the fatherless into children of the Most High God, to make sinners into saints, to make what was useless useful, to make us able to delight in you and love you, but because you first loved us. Overwhelm us with your love, goodness, kindness, generosity, and mercy. Conform us to your image, Lord Jesus, so we might demonstrate those aspects you have saved us to of you to others and hold us fast because life is too hard for us, but you have overcome the world. In your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Holy, holy.